Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. You stole my heart, but it wasn't stealing. I found my love when you stole my heart. Anybody guess who that was? For $5,000. Gene Autry. Gene Autry. <laughs> it had to be somebody old and crusty enough to remember Gene Autry. <clears throat> there you go. Anybody ever had their heart stolen, or anything stolen for that matter? It's, you feel violated, don't you? Whether it's a TV or a, or a book or a, something out of your locker, or a, you, know, you feel violated when somebody's stolen, taking something that doesn't belong to you, or doesn't belong to them, belongs to you. And this text today from Matthew 27 and 28, that's exactly what happens, but it, it doesn't happen from who, you, who you'd expect. It doesn't happen from the thug down the street. It happens from the guys at church, the preachers, the pastors. They're the ones that are stealing away the whole idea, the concept of this resurrection and the truth behind it. So let's look at this text and see kind of what happens here. I think there's some things we can glean and learn from that. Matthew chapter 27, picking up in verse 62, and then we'll read through chapter 28 together. So kind of a lengthy reading, but I think, I think you'll see this unfold. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, Afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they'll see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they came they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You're to say his disciples came during the night and stole away, stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. Well, the first thing stolen in this first few verses here of chapter 27 is the stolen promise of his resurrection. The stolen promise of his resurrection. Look at verse 62. The next day, after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious guys and the professors, the, the, the Pharisees were half of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews, and it was made up of, of, of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were the judges. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests, the religious guys, the pastors, got together and devised this plan. Um, the, the, the stolen promise of his resurrection is really in their attempt to say, the disciples here, the, the, they're going to come steal the body away, so let's place a guard. They go, to, they go to Pilate. Let's place a guard beside the tomb to make sure they don't steal him away and come up with some story. And these pr- pr- proposed men of faith now, and, and professors, if you will, uh, are attempting to steal away the promise of the resurrection. Think of this with me. Attempting to steal away the promise, and they, they heard what he said, uh, in fact, just weeks earlier, days earlier, in fact. Attempt to steal away the promise of a resurrection by guarding a dead man. Are you with me? Guarding a dead man to steal away the promise of a resurrection. Now, how much faith does that require on the part of the, the Pharisees and the chief priests? Enough that they had seen the things he had done and enough that this could be true. Yes, he's dead and he's inside the grave and there's a stone rolled over the front of it, but we've seen some other things he'd done. We've heard some of the stories of of, of raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, for heaven's sake, maybe this is true. So in attempting to steal away the promise of his resurrection, um, they they place guards there at the tomb. Um, their, Their fear really is what motivated them to do this. I wonder what fear motivates us to do sometimes. Um, guys, has, has fear motivated you to go buy a dozen roses sometimes? No. Has it motivated you to, to, to say things or do things to make you look better than you really are? Has it motivated you to say, to say things or, 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 or spread rumors or gossip about your adversary? Uh, enough to make you look better in the eyes of those that your family and friends, those you're around. Um, in doing that, we're stealing honesty and replacing it with, with, with falsehood. And that's exactly what these chief priests and Pharisees were doing. They, they were stealing away the honesty and the promise of his resurrection and replacing it with a lie that these disciples, they're, I mean, they're liable to come steal the body away and say that he rose again. And so their whole motivation to do that was the fear of losing the notoriety, the fear of losing the influence, the fear of losing the fact that they were somebody in the community. And I tell you, fear is a great motivator for us to step outside the will of God. Often it, often it is. Um, I don't know what, what it takes for you, what kind of trigger mechanism there is for you, but whatever fear causes you to do to move away from the Lord, I'm going to tell you it comes from the enemy. We're going to see that a little more clearly in just a moment. Secondly, not only the stolen promise of his resurrection, but the stolen promise of truth. Turn back, uh, turn down to, uh, into chapter 28 and look at verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders, watch this, and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say the disciples came during the night, stole the body away while we were asleep. So 
devoid of all truth, these holy men, these men of God, devised a plan. Now get this with me. Here are these Roman soldiers. These government soldiers go to the church to, to seek to tell the truth and to get the truth about what they should do. And at the church, the very place they should get truth above all else, all they receive is a lie. From the very chief priests, from the very Pharisees, that are these bastions of truth and bastions of right. These soldiers go to tell the truth and to seek it, yet all they get is deception. Here's some money. Tell this. Say this. You know what? There's a judgment day one of these days. And those whom you and I have pushed away from the kingdom, we're going to have to answer for. I don't like that. Because I think of my own life and I think of missed influence. And I think of, I think of, the, of the folks in my life that perhaps by a word, by an attitude, by an action, I pushed away from the kingdom. I'm going to have to answer for that one of these days. And these, these, these chief priests and Pharisees, are going to, these, these soldiers are going to come to their mind as they stand before God one of these days of pushing away with a dollar, with a denarius, with pushing away with money, the very thing, the very truth they came to seek and came, and came to try and see. Well, sometimes truth is a hard thing to see. Sometimes it's easier if we're walking in the Spirit, and that's, that's where we're, we're going to go here in just a moment. But I want you to see that, that every lie originates from the father of every lie. Every lie originates from the enemy. It originates from Satan. John 8 says this. It's on the screen. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because, watch this, you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks in his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is no truth in him, is what this passage says. So, in essence, when we're seeking anything but truth, we're following the path of the enemy. And that seed of following a lie has come from him. That seed of laying truth aside and choosing, making a choice to believe a lie instead of the truth, to believe deception instead of the truth, in this case, to orchestrate a story uh, bigger than imaginable for these soldiers come from the enemy. It, it's, it's, it, there is, sure, there's no good in us, the scripture says, but the evil in us comes from the evil one. I think it's important that we see that. Um, when ours is a self-serving faith, meaning that our truth trumps absolute truth, we're going to get ourselves in trouble every time. When ours is a self-serving faith, meaning that our truth is, is far more important and relevant and real to us than absolute truth, than what the Bible says, than what His Spirit is speaking to our heart. When we rationalize truth away, we're, we're digging ourselves into a deep hole and we're finding our ste- ourselves step after step after step walking in lockstep with the enemy. Now, none of us wants to do that. None of us purposes to do that. We don't set out to say, I'm going to believe a lie today. But it starts a story at a time. It starts an attitude at a time. It starts a relationship at a time. And it moves incrementally to where we've, we've formed our own theology around what's right and what's wrong, regardless of what Scripture says. And we've formed our own opinions about good and bad and evil. And, and we, like these Pharisees and like these chief priests, come to church and say, I'm okay compared to her, compared to him. I look pretty good. We've formed our own truth rather than looking at the truth for the source of how we need to live and our opinions. When that happens... 
When that happens, oftentimes God will give the enemy. Luke 22 says he gave them permission to sift you like wheat. Gives the enemy permission, permission to sift you and basically put wheat in a, in, in, in a, in, in a sifter of some kind to where you, as you shake it, all that you're left with is the wheat and, and the, the chaff falls through the cracks. He says, I do that. I give the enemy permission to sift you, basically to expose the very thing that needs to be exposed. And whether we like it or not, exposure is coming. It may come in judgment or it may come here and now. But exposure is coming if we rationalize away real truth. Um, and really, for these guys and for us, in the long run, it's far easier to tell the truth than it is to start deception and, and have to tell this lie to cover that one and help tell this lie to cover this one. And we've we got all these dots connected to, to cover ourselves for when we started, to, started down this road of deception. And it's, and it's far easier to tell the truth when you come to think of it. Why is that such a hard thing in our culture? Why is it so hard in our culture to tell the truth? I don't get that. Uh, I don't get it in part because I grew up in a home where truth was pretty obvious. And I've absorbed that <clears throat> as well in my own life. Sometimes to my own detriment. Sometimes I speak truth where grace is needed. Um, but I see truth, and, I, and I, it's, it's, it's easy for me to step in it, sometimes because I do. But it's, it's so hard to start down this road of deception, and then I'm covering this to say that, and I'm saying this to cover this. And it's far easier in the long run if we just tell the truth and absorb what comes with it, good or bad for us, regardless of how it makes us look. The stolen promise of truth is one that they not only stole away, but often we do too. But finally, <clears throat> the stolen promise of his story in verses 16 to 20, you see this, how they come to Galilee and come to the mountain <clears throat> just before his ascension, and he gives them these last words, and his last words basically are, go and make disciples. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, <clears throat> it looks like go and show, and go and serve, and go and and love, and go and give, and yes, go and tell. And, and what are we to tell? Well, he tells us in verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what is he saying? Tell them my story. Tell them the gospel. And tell them how my story, the gospel, has changed your story. Tell them how this eternal story has affected your temporal story and turned your temporal story into an eternal story. There's great power in how God uses those stories over and over and over again in your life and in my life. I'm not, I'm not anti-evangelism plans. I, I, I believe in those things. Uh, find, a, find a method that you're comfortable with, whether it's something as old as the Roman road or evangelism explosion or whatever, whatever faith, the faith course, or whatever training you, you've ever been interested in receiving or book you've put, pulled all the, off the shelf in a, in a Christian bookstore. Regardless of what that is, seek that. But understand the most powerful tool you have to share with Christ with someone is your own story of what he's done in your heart and in your life. And now what he's done in your heart and your life has changed your attitude, it's changed your thoughts, it's changed your behavior, it's hopefully changed your vocabulary, it's changed your relationships, it's changed your marriage, it's changed how you see work, it's changed how you look at folks. It's changed you. His story has changed yours. And that's the powerful uh, the, uh, element in a witness. Yes, we've got to take someone to the gospel eventually to say, here's what the Bible says about how to be saved, but here's what he's done for me. Here's what he's done in my life. And that's what he's saying here in this, in this last message of go and tell, go and make disciples. Go tell them what I told you. Go tell them what the, what the scripture says. And in doing so, tell them your story. Share with them. Love them. 
Show them some mercy. Give, serve, do those things that I've done to you. Make disciples like I've discipled you. Don't just tell them. Show them. Reveal to them uh, what, is, what is really important. Well, <clears throat> Easter is the greatest story of victory there is. Um, I like watching the Falcons win a state championship, don't you? I like watching UT have a good play every now and then. You know, <laughs> one in every 65. But <clears throat> I like celebrating victory, don't you? I mean, it's hard to walk away from a defeat. You feel like, man, I, I've, something's been left on the table. Yet, oftentimes we live with an attitude and, and, and a countenance of defeat on our face and in our, and, and in our spirit that causes people to wonder, is their God alive? <laughs> I mean, they go to church and they're, they, 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 they talk about the Bible sometimes and the, they invite, but they look as if their God's dead. I mean, they look as if he's been entombed since the get-go. And I wonder if you and I lose the glimpse of the victory that's ours because of we celebrate today the fact that the tomb's empty because Muhammad is still in the tomb today wherever he was laid. Buddha still in the tomb today wherever he was laid. Any other leader you want to name still in the tomb today where they were laid, but the tomb is empty where Jesus was laid. You and I have the victory today because that's true. And that needs to show through in our vocabulary. It needs to show through in our attitude. It needs to show through in our relationships. Our marriages need to look like that. We need to look like that at work, that we are victorious, that we've won because we have, but only because he has. And the, 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 the fact that that's, that's the truth and that that's real ought to permeate every, every arena of our life. Um, I fear today, though, that rather than worshiping the risen king, the new, one of the new religions on the scene is, is this worshiping at the feet of knowledge. And I'm, I'm forgetting all the education one can get I, I, I believe in that wholeheartedly, but I, I fear that we're we're moving toward and transitioning as a culture toward the smartest idea in the room is the one that needs to be respected. The smartest person in the room is the one that needs to lead, not the one with the most integrity, but the one who knows the most. And and the, in in fact, uh, uh, evidence of this outgrowth and uh, this idea is is the, the 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 growth of the religion of Scientology. Um, it sprung up from the book Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard in the, in the late 60s and early 70s and, and formed into a faith that, that literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, are following after. And it basically says this, the power over your circumstances, whether they be spiritual, whether they be emotional, whether they be, be physical, the power over your circumstances is in your mind. You know what? The power of your circumstances is in the Word of God. It's in the Spirit of God. It's not in your mind. Yes, does God use your mind? Sure He can and does. In fact, he tells us in Romans, here's, here's what happens by the renewing of your mind, by the regurgitating of the things that you thought were important, and now you're filling it with, things, with new things that are. This, this, this renewal of mind changes the way we think, changes our attitudes and our behavior. But the power's not in our mind. That's not the source. The source of power is in the one who said to Lazarus, come forth, come out, and who said to the followers around that day, I told you I would rise again in three days. Why are you so? Why do you seek a living one among the dead? The angel said, "Why? He's why? Why are you surprised that he's not here, that he's gone? We need to we need to live with that sense of victory, that sense of uh, attitude of anticipation of yes, not only is he alive, but we will be too, and not only is he alive, and we will be too, but he's coming again to to take us into what is truly living. Um, 
And so whether, whether it's Scientology, whether it's something else, it really doesn't matter. And, and take this with a grain of salt because this is not an all-inclusive statement. But it really doesn't matter what you know. It matters who you know. Now, the what you know matters in the sense that you need to know that the Scripture is true. You need to know that the gospel is the redemptive message of Jesus. And you need to receive him and pray to receive him in your heart. You don't, you don't absorb him by osmosis. It begins in a relationship, but a relationship that you initiate to say, God, I give myself to you. I want to live for you. I want to belong to you. It begins with a, with a prayer, with a conversation with him to invite him into your heart. But that's not where it stops. That's just the beginning. The beginning is the attitudes that, that, that shift in my thinking, in my speech, in my behavior, in my, in my relationships. It permeates every crack of my life. And I choose to live that way because I know he lives in me. Um, here's some great scripture uh, that, that kind of reinforces this point in 1 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen. If you want to turn to it and underline it, it's great scripture. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, For if they would, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. What no human mind has conceived. The smartest of the smart. The things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. You want, to know the, you, want to know the, you want to have the depths of wisdom? Lean on the Spirit of God. You want to have far greater understanding than the rest of the culture around you? Walk in the ways of God. Now, seek to know the things you need to seek to know. Get your nose in this book. Get it in other books. Learn all the things you can learn, but do you really want to exercise wisdom? Lean on the Spirit of God. It says the Spirit moves us into the deeper place. The Spirit takes the immature and moves them toward maturity. We've taken a quick sidebar here on Easter Sunday out of First and Second Peter, our study, which really deals with the fact of walking through adversity. You've seen that if you've been here at all. You heard that. And walking through adversity is a step after step after step toward a more mature place with him, toward a place where I understand his nature, I understand his ways, I get the things that he's about because I learn them in a hard place. In the good place, life's clicking, I'm doing okay. I made this happen myself. In a hard place, i got no place else to turn but him. And so I start to see him more clearly than I ever had before. And I start to walk with him more intimately than I had before. And my walk with him comes alive. Because why? There's no place else to turn. I don't, nothing else is working but him. So as we see that, as we walk in those, in those places that are difficult, we see what maturity really is. And this scripture in 1 Corinthians here comes alive. Um, <clears throat> To get back to my question as we started, what's been stolen away from you? You ever had anything stolen away from you? We, uh, when we lived over on Burwell in the hood, we, um, we had one of the girls' bikes, I think it was Hannah's bike, stolen off our porch. And the sad thing about it, it was a hand-me-down bike that I had put in, sprayed with a new coat of paint and I flecked some, sprayed it purple and flecked some pink paint on it for her and stuff to give it some space. Cool looking little bike, but she didn't know it was hand me down. But anyway, <clears throat> it didn't last very long because somebody in our neighborhood wanted it worse than we did, and so we left it on the porch. And somebody came and got it, and and you know she's kind of upset by that, and we were ticked off too because 
here we've got this good hand-me-down bike that I put a new coat of paint on, and so now it's gone. And I, you know, and and a few years after that, I walk out my house and my Jeep that I just left there the other night before is gone. Here I am, keys in hand, ready to stick it in the gone. And so I stand there for a moment. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, but I stand there, or maybe you walk into a house where somebody's stolen something. I stand there, and I'm looking at my key, and I have no car to put this in. What's so I go back in my house, and I'm dialing like an idiot. I feel like an idiot. Dial 911. Somebody stole my car. And so, you know, I, we end up finding it um, four or five days later. Wheel covers, are gone, the, the real expensive plastic wheel covers that I put on there, were, 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 were stolen off of it. It was gone. Somebody rifled through my glove box. And, you know, I was tickled to find my car until I got in it. And I got in it, <clears throat> and they had torn the, torn the console up where they where they tried to jimmy it to get it started. So I guess stuck a screwdriver in to get it started or something. It really started without a key. All you had to do was just turn the thumb knob. Anyway, the, 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 it had been rifled through a bunch of junk in the back seat. My wheel cover's gone. Somebody had gone through my glove box, all my papers out in the floor and tapes and CDs. And, and I, I was tickled to, to, as I pulled up to the car. Here's my car back, and it's, it's not all crashed up in, in, in pieces. Until I get inside, and I see somebody's gone through my stuff. And I think... How dare somebody go through my stuff? I need to find who this was to go through. They're going to answer for going through my stuff. I mean, that's how I felt in the moment. I feel like God, judge, and jury, and everybody else and say, you're going to pay for going through my stuff. You feel violated. You feel like somebody's got to burn it. Somebody's going to suffer for this. Rather (laughs) Rather than thanking God for getting my vehicle back in one piece. And I I eventually did that. I eventually come around to, and, and the Lord and probably my wife said, you're making too much of this. And I was, and I did. But you feel violated. Well, here's the truth. We've all been violated in this room. We've had something stolen away from us. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship that's an extra family or, or, or ultra family relationship outside your immediate family. We've had something stolen away from us, haven't we? Probably all of us have. Our heart, <laughs> our emotion. We've had something stolen away from us. I'm going to tell you, that's what the enemy is up to. The scripture says he's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Why do we think he's about anything else? That's all he's about. is thievery, killing, and destroying your attitude, my attitude, my witness, your witness, our exposure of, the, of how we handle adversity, that's the very thing he's come to, to, to scratch open and see if he can get us to walk away from God. And oftentimes we do, whether it's emotion, whether it's anger, whether it's whatever. But we walk away in those moments when we have the loudest witness of saying, okay, something bad's happened to them. Let's see if their God's real to them now. Yet in our violation, in those things stolen away, we get mad at the one who, who, who stole it. you know, and, and, and justifiably so, I guess, to some degree. And, instead of saying, God... What have I missed? What have I not seen? What did you want me to, what's this all supposed to teach me? What am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to glean from this? Um, So, as we close here, a question and an observation. What have you allowed the enemy to steal away from you? Has it been a relationship? Has it been a job? Has it been a career? Has it been, has 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 he stolen away the joy that you once had in your faith? Has he stolen away the passion that you used to live with and walk with? 
Has he stolen away your desire to, to give, to serve, to love, to reach out? What's he stolen away from you? Here's my encouragement and my admonition to you today is this. To claim the victory that's yours. Claim the victory that's yours. And pick up the word and go take it back. The victory that's yours says the tomb is empty today. I'm victorious. I'm, I belong to him because I'm in relationship with him because of what happened at the cross. I'm victorious. He's coming again to, to receive me unto himself, the scripture says, I'm victorious. I win over and over and over again. I win. Why is it that we still choose to live like something's been stolen? Why can we not take his word? This is the, this is the armament. This is, this is the ammunition. Why can we not take his word and go and spit in the enemy's eye and take what he's stolen away from us back and say, no more, no more. Allowing it to still be stolen after it's been stolen for decades, for years, that's my choice. You stole it, it was yours. Allowing, me, allowing myself to remain in a stolen state, in a state of abandonment, in a state of rebellion, in a state of anger, in a state of blame, is my own choice. I'm choosing to look you in the eye and say no more, at least not in this area. No more, at least not with me, at least not today. Not anymore. You're the thief. I recognize your thievery, and I've come by the, word of, by the power of the Word of God to take back the very thing you took from me. You took my joy. You took my peace. You took my sense of belonging. You took my sense of connection. You took the things that were precious to me. You, maybe you took a loved one in loss. You took things that were precious to me. No more. No more. Choosing to remain a victim of your thievery is my fault. Your thievery is your fault. But choosing to remain a victim of it is my own choice. No more. Not today. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to realize because we've won and because this victory is ours and because the tomb is empty and because we have a living Savior to claim, we can look the enemy in the eye today and say, no more, no more, no more stealing away. No more taking things that don't belong to you and taking things that you felt like would devastate me. And maybe they did for a while, but no more, no more. I'm choosing victory today in this area. Now, maybe there are other areas that I'm not so victorious in yet, yet. But today, in this area, I'm claiming victory over you. And I challenge you to do that today. Don't, don't allow him another day of claiming victory in that area, in that area, in that area, because he's stolen away something that belonged to you, that was yours, that you once had. Not anymore. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Cross Point Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.